in your Bibles, Luke 6. And those of you who are just joining us today, we are continu- continuing on our study through the Gospel of Luke. Hey, sometimes I do the, the Mother's Day sermons, and uh, sometimes I don't this year. I just wasn't getting a whole lot of inspiration for what I would preach. So I'm like, I'm going to just continue with what God has providentially brought us to in his word in, uh, in Luke chapter 6. We believe the Bible is God's word, that it is true, that it is sufficient, that it is authoritative. And so what it says, we, we must do. So continuing on, our, our study of Luke will be in chapter 6 and, and verses 37 to 42 today. Before we do, I just want to direct you to a couple of things. Just a reminder, no evening service tonight. Uh, it is Mother's Day. We want you to spend time with your family. So take tonight off. Uh, this is not the time to go out and break out the chainsaw and do all the yard work, but to spend time with your family. And so we just encourage you to do that tonight uh, in place of our evening service. Also, take a look at the back of the bulletin. I'm going to start putting on the backs of the bulletins uh, a little write-up of some of our core values here at Cloverleaf, some of our distinctives. And, and one of those distinctives is gospel-centered fellowship. And uh, what I mean by that is we take membership really seriously around here. And I want you to read through that. If you're not a member, think about, pray about being a member here at Cloverleaf. So I just want to draw your attention to that. All right, Luke chapter 6 in your Bibles. I was doing a little bit of reading this week, and I learned this, that uh, the Supreme Court of the United States began in 1790. Uh, got really, it's a start in the, with the Constitution that got ratified in 89. In the 1790, the Supreme Court met for the very first time. The first court had uh, four appointees on it, and they did not hear a single case. In fact, they didn't even have a building to meet in until 1935. Uh, now the Supreme Court is almost rule, uh, viewed as sort of like the, the greatest institution of our government. The number of people who have been on the Supreme Court over the number of years has changed. Uh, we got nine on the Supreme Court currently. There's a lot of arguments about should that number be expanded. In 1863, it had 10. You can imagine that would be a real problem if you were trying to get majority decisions and get five to five splits. Uh, but that, that number has stayed the same. The Supreme Court has ruled on matters big and small. One case in 1893, this was kind of cool, they argued whether tomatoes are a vegetable or a fruit. Anyone ever had that argument before? Is it a fruit or is it a vegetable? We had an argument in a small group the other night. Is a hot dog a sandwich or is it its own thing? And there's apparently a whole debate online about those. By the way, they decided that it is a vegetable, uh, not a fruit for those of you who are wondering. Here's the thing about all the members of the Supreme Court. There have been about 112, 113 over the years who have been members of that distinguished body. Here's something that is true of every single one of them. You ready? Every single member of the Supreme Court was appointed by the President of the United States. Nobody came along and was like, hey, I'm going to appoint myself. Um, you ever thought, man, I wish I could take that job. Those, what, are they, what are they doing? I'll do a better job than some of those guys. There's no such thing as a self-appointed member of the Supreme Court. I suppose the president could appoint themselves, but they've all been appointed by the president. Think how absurd it would be for one of us to show up to Washington, D.C. and roll up to the Supreme Court chambers and be like, hey, I bought myself a black robe on Amazon, and I've got a copy of the Constitution. I'm now a Supreme Court justice. Move over, John Roberts. I'm now the chief justice. That would be absurd. And yet, every single one of us, I'm confident we can, I can say this, every single one of us have been guilty of a far more heinous crime. We've approached the Supreme Court of Heaven and we've said, God, move over. I'm going to be a self-appointed judge. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to do a better job than you do at, at judging and looking at the hearts of men and deciding what their status is and deciding that what they do doesn't, does or doesn't line up with what I want. Someone wrongs you instead of saying, God, vengeance is yours. You're thinking, God, I think I can do a better job of judging that person. I'm going to hold it against them, and I'm going to get even if it's the last thing I do. That is far more absurd 
than rolling up to Washington, D.C. and telling John Roberts to scoot over because you're going to take his place. We're trying to tell the God of the universe, I can do a better job than you. In our text today, Jesus warns us against being a self-appointed judge. He warns us against unjust judgment of other people. So look with me in the text, beginning in verse 37. By the way, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Plain, Luke's edition of what we would call the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew's gospel may be delivered on a different occurrence. Similar material. Let's back up to verse 36, because verse 36 is a transitional verse. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father in heaven, or as your Father also is merciful. So that wrapped up last week's section, and it leads into this one. So be merciful like your Father. Be merciful like your, your Dad who is in heaven. Judge not. Think about the opposite of mercy would be judgment. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Give, and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom or into the fold of your garment is the idea. For with the same measure you mete out that you measure, it shall be measured to you again. You speak a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? The answer, of course, is no. Shall they not both fall into the ditch or to the pit? The disciple, the pupil, the learner is not above his master, above his teacher. But everyone that is perfect, everyone that's, that's, that's taught well, shall be as his master. And why beholdest thou the mote, the speck, the, the sawdust that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam, the, the telephone pole, okay, would be the idea in our modern language, that is in thine own eye. Either how can you say to your brother, brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the moat which is in thy brother's eye. Some familiar phrases here, really familiar from Matthew's account. Judge not that you be not judged. Slightly different wording here, but the same idea. Jesus warns us against being a self-appointed judge, and he calls us. He calls us to show mercy. So verse 36 is sort of the hinge verse from the previous section into this section. God's saying, Christians, you must show mercy. Listen, every day we're going to be faced with making sort of moral judgments, moral determinations. Jesus is not saying here, don't ever use discernment, don't ever call sin, sin. Uh, he's going to come down in just a few verses to say that every tree is known by its fruit in verse 44. There are times when we will have to look and say, listen, this behavior is wrong. Churches at times are going to have to exercise church discipline and say, an individual is not living consistently with the gospel. We cannot regard them as a brother in Christ anymore. So we say, well, that's so judgmental. The Bible commands that. Jesus is not saying you should never go to court or the government has no role in ruling against crime. What he's dealing with here is unjust judgment. It's sort of this petty, vindictive, I'm going to go nitpick little problems in other people's lives when I haven't dealt with my own heart first. So what principles should guide us? As we interact with other people, as we deal with these interpersonal relationships, as we deal with sin in other people's lives. Listen, all of us here are sinners, right? Which means it is inevitable that we're going to be confronted with not only my own sin, but the sin of other people. What principles are going to guide me, right? How how do I work through that? Let me give us several principles that are here in the text. And and the title to these principles is not inspired. These are just the terms that I, I came up with to help us walk through this text. Some principles to guide us in showing mercy and interacting with other people. First principle, I'm going to call this the generosity principle. Verse 37, verse 38 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, and it will be for, you will be forgiven. And give, and it shall be given. Notice there's sort of four commands that he gives here. So don't judge, don't condemn. Rather, forgive, 
and give. There's two negatives and two positives. By the way, we saw that in the previous section. Luke really likes fours. Um, we, we saw that through the previous section. There's something going on here uh, with the literature and the structure that's just incredible. So positive and negative statements, four commands, right? And so Jesus is saying on the negative side, steer away from this ungenerous judgment, this judgmentalism, if you will, if you're okay with that word, this judgmental attitude. Again, I said he's not saying never ever discern, but rather don't have this vindictive, petty, censorious attitude where you're just fault finding all the time. This is a call, if you like this big word, magnanimity, to have this big hearted generosity to other people. Here's what we do. We often go the other way. We're really kind to ourselves and our faults, but very unkind to others and theirs. Right? We'll be like, well, I'm going to give myself the benefit of the, of the doubt, but man, that other person, uh-uh, no benefit of the doubt. This is saying, have this generous, gracious, magnanimous, giving heart to other people. A couple of words. So judge not in that first clause. Look at verse 37. Judge not, and then the next word, condemn not. There's kind of an escalation. The first word, judge, the basic sense of that is to make a distinction, right? We're going to have to make distinctions. We do that every day, right? You, you say, I'm going to do business here and not over there. I'm going to trust this person and not that person. And there's often very good reasons for that. That is not an inherently wrong activity. The question is, how do you do that? What is the standard by which you do that? Jesus is not saying, do not ever, ever make a moral judgment or call sin, sin. I need to make that really clear because that's sort of the creed of today. Judge not. Don't ever, don't ever look at what I'm doing and say that it could be wrong, don't, don't look at my lifestyle choices or, or you know, my friendships or my decisions to say that's wrong. The, the one sin in our culture today is to call someone else's behavior sin. Um, Jesus would not agree with that mentality. He has no problem with calling out sin, including, by the way, the sin of judgmentalism. Think about the self-contradiction that exists. Don't you dare judge me. You're being judgmental. Well, aren't you being judgmental and calling me judgmental, right? Uh, The point here is not to discard and reject moral standards, but to apply them appropriately. Jesus is forbidding a judgmental attitude, a fault-finding heart, an eagerness to point out other people's problems in order to to avoid dealing with my own. And he gets to that in the second part of the passage where he's like, it's like they got a little piece of sawdust in their eye, but you're not dealing with the telephone pole in your own face. I don't want to deal with the sin in my heart, so it's a whole lot easier to point fingers and deflect blame. He's saying, that's the kind of thing that I am forbidding. There's that next word that's condemn not. We see that judgmentalism here is selfish. Judgmentalism is merciless. That word for condemn is taking the idea of judge and now coming to a verdict. To condemn, to pronounce guilty. The connotation here is hard-hearted lack of compassion. So that first word, judge not, and you will not be judged, condemn not, is coming to a verdict. We talk about judgmentalism. Understand this, judgmentalism is inherently selfish. I don't want to deal with my sin. I want to look good to people. And here's a great way to look good to people is go around and point out where everyone else is wrong. Anyone heard the phrase virtue signaling before? Kind of this new phenomenon with, uh, you know, with social media where you can come off and put out a virtuous opinion that costs you nothing, right? So something happens in the news and you say, man, it's so horrific that this happened. Well, it didn't affect me in any way. My statement doesn't do anything, but it shows everyone, hey, look, I'm a good person. Or, I can't believe this person over here did this. This is horrible, whether it's on the right to the left or the left to the right. Virtue signaling. It's selfish. What is the aim behind that? What is the desire behind that? It's so that I can look good or feel better about myself. I've got this nagging conscience that's showing me I'm a sinner. I need to be right with God. And to silence that, put on the robes of the judge and start pointing out to other people. Kent Hughes says this. Somehow judgmental people imagine that they will lessen their guilt by judging their sins in others. It's a great statement. 
So I, I have a problem with lying, let's say, what's going to drive me nuts? I can't believe these politicians are so deceptive. Hey, look, look at your own heart, right? Is my own heart deceptive? So this judgmentalism, it's selfish. It is merciless. This kind of attitude where you come along and say, I'm going to be the one who is going to condemn. Listen, who is the only one who has the right to ultimately condemn? It is God, right? And I'm going to come along. Someone has wronged me. I'm going to condemn them for all eternity to be in this category of an evil, wicked person, and they have no hope of repentance. Taking the place of God. The attitude that assumes God's place. The attitude that pretends to know the motives and the reasons for other people's actions. It is merciless. This judgmentalism that Jesus condemns is the kind of thing that goes from an evaluation to issuing a verdict without ever examining the evidence. A rush to judgment. Hear a little, a little thing on Twitter, and you're, oh, immediately come to my conclusion. And then more evidence comes out later that you, you realize, man, that was wrong. How many people ever come back around and are like, hey, I'm sorry I was wrong about that rush to judgment? I've never seen it done, right? Uh, so this merciless judgmentalism. But don't f- forget this. This judgmentalism is dangerous. Notice the statements, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Notice the passives. You shall not be judged. You shall not be condemned. My question is, by whom? And I think the answer is clear, by God. He's saying, judge not and you will not be judged by God. Matthew puts it a little differently, judge not in order that you be not judged. The sense here is this. People who have the Father's heart of mercy and generosity to other sinners reflect that they belong to the Father and will stand before him on judgment day and be welcomed into his presence. On the other hand, he is saying this, judgmentalism is dangerous. So think about this, judge not and you will not be judged. The opposite would also be true, right? Judge and you will be judged. Condemn and you will be condemned. Listen, judgmentalism is dangerous to your soul. Dangerous to your eternity. Now let me be clear, I'm not saying that you attain acquittal on judgment day by being nice to people. We we attain acquittal on judgment day through the work of Jesus Christ. You say, how do I know that I have been acquitted and justified as I am ready to show the same kind of mercy to other people that I myself have received? This, this generosity, though, notice it continues on. Those are the negative statements. Notice the positive statements. The end of verse 37, forgive and ye shall be forgiven. Give and it shall be given unto you. A lot of people like that first part. Judge not that you be not judged. But what Jesus requires is not simply avoiding a judgmental critical spirit. He is requiring that we have a forgiving spirit. Do you see that? This this is not just a, well, I'm not going to judge anyone. The big question here is, are you willing to forgive those who have wronged you? You see, most people at this point would say, amen, don't judge. Especially don't judge me. But Jesus is demanding a far higher standard than that. Our world will say, that's right, no judging. Nobody can judge me except God, which that's a terrifying statement to say, by the way. Jesus says, I'm not calling you to ignore wrong. I'm calling you to forgive wrongs. This is not just, I'm not going to judge sins in society. This is rather, when somebody has wronged me personally, that's where the real test is. That's the real test. Somebody wrongs you personally, are you going to show this generous mercy and forgiveness? This generous mercy extends forgiveness. The end of the statement says, forgive and it shall, ye shall be forgiven. A couple of different words the New Testament can use for forgive. This is a really unusual one. This is a legal term. Maybe a, a, a good word to substitute here is the word pardon, the word acquit, a legal term. The, the word here means to set free, to release, to pardon It calls for, this word here, get this, calls for the forgiveness of an actually guilty person. 
The one who has personally wronged you. This is not simply affirming that an already innocent person is innocent. It is choosing to withhold condemnation against an actually guilty person who has wronged you. So you say, I'm all for, judge not. My question is, have you forgiven and do you forgive those who have wronged you? Hey, have you been wronged before? We live in a sinful, fallen world, so it is inevitable that you will be wronged by other sinners. It's just inevitable. And we like to get this sort of self-righteous sense of, I've been wronged and I'm a victim now and I'm not responsible for anything else that I do from that point on. Jesus says, the standard that I have for my people is that you pardon, even if that person is as guilty as sin. Here's what we begin to think. But if I forgive them, then the scales of justice won't be right. If I forgive them, they'll, they'll get away with it and do it again. Romans 12 says, vengeance is mine. God will be the one to take care of that in the end. So Jesus is not calling for us to ignore the sinfulness of sin. This is not a, there's no such thing as sin, just close your eyes to it. No, this is dealing with sin head on, and even when sin has wronged you and hurt you. He's calling us to acknowledge the evil that is done to us. It's okay to say, I have been horribly wronged, abused, mistreated. Forgiveness does not pretend that the, 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 the wrong is not a big deal. Forgiveness says, yeah, the wrong is a big deal. And not only has it been against me, it's also been against God. It's hurt, it's painful, it's deep. But forgiveness says this, rather than being like, ah, it's not a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. And even though it is a big deal, I still forgive. That's the standard to which we are called. God calls us to acknowledge the evil. He's not, he, he is demanding that we recognize the wickedness committed against us. And he is calling for us to release the wrongdoer from the debt that they feel, that we feel that they owe us. So how on earth can I do that? That's impossible. You don't know how deeply I've been wronged. You don't know the pain that I'm feeling even now as you mention that. Well, look back to the text. Forgive and you shall be forgiven. The only way you can do this is with a certainty that you look forward to judgment day and know that you yourself are forgiven. There's some reciprocity going on here, right? Jesus is not saying that we earn forgiveness from God by forgiving other people. Rather, he is saying this. Someone who has been forgiven by God will be ready to forgive other people. Let me put it this way. Forgiven people forgive. Christians forgive. Ephesians 4.32 puts it so clearly. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? Why? Even as God, because of Christ, has forgiven you. The only way you will be able to forgive those who wrong you is by realizing, I have wronged God. And my wronging of God is infinitely worse than anything that anyone has done to me. Because God's more important than I am. And God, because of Jesus dying on the cross for me, has forgiven me freely and fully and at great cost to himself. I am called to do the same. And guess what? God's forgiveness does not minimize the sin that we've done. God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He nails sin to the cross. He doesn't pretend that it didn't exist. He reckons with its horror and he forgives on the basis of the punishment that was exacted on Jesus. So by no means were he saying, yeah, just ignore sin. No, forgive sin. Now, generous mercy, we look at the text, verse 38, give and it will be given to you. And then he has this amazing description of the generosity of God's grace to us. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. This generous mercy not only forgives, but it gives. It is, it is, it is not stingy with, well, if you meet these criteria, then I will forgive you. If you stop doing these things, I'll quit judging you. There, there, there's not a quid pro quo, but it is a generous giving. He says, you give like that, and guess what? It will be given to you passive voice again is God who is behind this generosity the end of verse 38 says the measure you use so the measuring cup 
says that's the same one God will use to you, but he's going to go above and beyond. The, the image here in verse 38 is from the grain market, right? So you go into this, this Middle Eastern grain market with your basket to go buy a bunch of, a bunch of wheat to go home and make your bread, and they, they fill the basket up, right? And so he says they, they're gonna, it's going to be good measure. It's going to be an honest measure. And then you're like, hey, we're going to press it down to fill in any of the cracks. We're going to shake the basket to get it all the way down into the crevices, and then we're going to keep pouring onto it until the basket overflows. Imagine you're wearing a robe into the lap of the robe. He's saying, that's the kind of generosity God will give to you. Christians are a giving and forgiving people. Why? Because the God of Christians is a generous and giving God. And if you don't believe me, if you don't believe that God is generous, look at the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the supreme declaration of the generosity of God. So that's the generosity principle. What should guide me in my interactions with other people? Generosity. God's been so generous to me. God has withheld judgment that I rightly deserve. God has given me forgiveness that I don't deserve. God has given me so much more on top of that. I ought to show the same to other people. Here's a second principle to guide us in our interactions with people, in showing mercy to them. And I'm going to call this the maturity principle. Verse 39, he speaks a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above the master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Now, just a word here. Some commentators say this begins a brand new section in the Sermon on the Mount. We've got this phrase, he speaks a parable to him, coming into his conclusion. I believe this is, this is part and parcel of what we just said, because he's going to come back in verse 41 to talk about judging again. And so it's like a sandwich. We've got a statement about judging, then the statement about the blind leading the blind, and the master and the pupil, and then back to judging again. So it's a sandwich. This all ties together. This maturity principle. Now, what is Jesus saying in verse 39? Blind people cannot lead blind people. Right Now, he uses this in other places to say, look, hey, look at the Pharisees. They have no idea what they're doing. They're misinterpreting God's law. Don't follow the Pharisees. Here he's making a different point. Okay, this is a common proverb. It's a common saying, and he's applying it in a different way. There's no mention of the Pharisees here in the context anywhere. He's saying to the disciples, you do not have the ability to lead and help someone else until you yourself can see. That's, that's the sense here. It's like disciple, Christian. It's like, hey, don't have this censorious, judgmental attitude where he's going to go in just a couple of verses. Says, but we do need to be able to help people overcome sin in their lives. There is a rightful place for the Christian to come to another Christian and to a friend and be like, hey, buddy, I'm seeing the sin in your life. I want to help you with this. I want to walk through, you, through this with you. I want to get that speck out of your eye. I want to deal with the sin. He says, but before you do that, you yourself have to be able to see right? Blind people can't lead blind people. Now, the image here, if you're running around Palestine in the the first century, here's the big thing you really need in Palestine in the first century, and actually today, water, right? Now, how are you going to go get water? You're going to dig a bunch of wells. You're going to dig a bunch of cisterns. The, The landscape would have been pitted with cisterns, wells, pits all over the place, uh, some of which may have been covered, some of which may have been uncovered. I grew up in, in Arizona, and in the mountains behind our house, there are abandoned mine shafts all over the place, just sort of tunneling through the hills. A hundred years ago, they dug for copper and gold, and then they leave, you know, they close up shop, and the mine shafts are still there. You can be going down the road, and there's a mine shaft right over there with, with no marker, no fence around it, and there's hundreds of them all over Arizona. They don't even know where they all are. Uh, if you're not paying attention, right, if you're walking around, you're, you're a smartphone zombie, just kind of checking Twitter and Facebook as you go along, boom, you could, you know, walk down a mine shaft. We've all seen the videos of people, like, walking into light poles. Uh, imagine if you were actually physically blind, and you've got a friend who's also blind, and be like, hey, buddy, I'm going to help you walk around. That could be deadly, 
right? You could be wandering along and poof, disappear down a pit and oh, splash into the bottom. Nobody will ever see you or hear from you again. He's saying, it kind of a humorous example, but kind of a serious example, saying, disciples, Christians, if you are spiritually blind yourself, you have no business trying to lead other people. Be careful about appointing yourself as a judge when you haven't actually been able to see what's going on in God's law and your own heart yourself. One commentator named Stein put it this way, if a disciple has not learned enough to see his or her own faults and yet judges others, how can such a person truly teach or correct others? Uh, the great sign that you understand God's word is you understand what it means in your life, what it means in your heart. Now, verse 40 continues on this idea of maturity. The disciple is not above his master. So, new metaphor, new parable. By the way, the word parable doesn't just simply mean a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. It can be just a little brief proverb, some kind of a comparison. We might say today an illustration. Verse 40, the disciple is not above his master. So, in other words, the student is not greater than the teacher, right? There's the teacher, there's the student. That's, that's, a, that's a given, right? The teacher is to be the authority. They know what's going on. The students don't. And so the teachers teach and the students learn. At least that's the way it should be. He's saying, okay, the student is not above the teacher. So the word disciple, a pupil, a learner. In Jesus' day, there was no internet, all right? You couldn't go Google stuff to be like, let me go teach myself something. There were very few libraries, okay, the library at Alexandria, but not a whole lot of libraries, not a whole lot of books. If you want to go learn something, you would go find someone who was an expert in it and be like, I'm going to go hang out with you. I'm going to follow you around. I'm going to see what you do, and I want to do it the way that you do it. So you might want to be a carpenter. You go attach yourself to a carpenter. You want to grow spiritually, you go find some guy like Jesus, and you're like, I want to be like you. The goal of this learning is to be like the one doing the teaching. That's what he says in the second half. Everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. He says the goal for the disciple of Jesus is to be like Jesus. So it's a simple illustration. That's the goal of the student. The goal of the student is to learn what the teacher is teaching and ultimately to be like the teacher. And by the way, in academics, every teacher loves to see their students go beyond what they have done. Right, So you're teaching a, a piano lesson, and it's thrilling when the, the piano student one day is playing in Carnegie Hall. You're like, man, they, they, they took what I taught them, and they ran with it. Here's something that's never going to happen in the Christian life, though. You're never going to get to the point where you get beyond Jesus. You're never going to get to the point where you no longer need the teacher, where you have learned everything he has to teach, and you can leave Jesus in the rearview mirror. Jesus is essential. You and I are all non-essential. We need to remember that. I am non-essential. You're the pastor of the church. Cloverleaf Baptist Church will continue on decades after I am gone, Lord willing. The gospel will continue. The kingdom of God will advance without Sam Sinclair. But listen, the kingdom of God will not advance without Jesus Christ. So he's saying the goal here is to be Christ-like. And as you help others, as you lead others, as you teach others, the goal is to point them to Jesus, not to you. He's the authority. He's the standard. So as we interact with people as we're showing mercy. You say, what is this going to look like? How do I go about doing this? Because Jesus, be merciful, verse 36. Don't judge, be forgiving. What is this going to look like? It's not so much what is it going to look like, who is it going to look like? It's going to look like Jesus. You know what Jesus says about himself? I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Which means this, when we interact with other people, we ought to also be Gentle. Now, that word gentle doesn't mean you're just like, oh, nothing, no big deal. It's the idea of meekness, that there is infinite strength behind Jesus, yet a bruised reed he will not break. He is kind and gentle to repentant sinners. And so should we. One of the great travesties in the church of Jesus Christ is that at times 
we have not shown that gentleness to those who are hurting. People have come forward to say, I've been hurt, I've been, I've been abused, I've been mistreated. And instead of showing compassion and sympathy to them, we say, let's circle the wagons because we don't want our reputation to be hurt. Jesus does not do that. He puts an arm around those who are hurting. He welcomes those who are broken if they come in repentance. He shows mercy. He showers mercy on all who come to him. If you want to see what Jesus looks like, go read the Beatitudes. If you want to see what Jesus looks like, read the fruit of the Spirit and say, does this mark me? Spiritual maturity is not about how much Bible do you know, though you do need to know the Bible. It is how much Christ-likeness is, is evidenced in your life. You can know a whole lot of theology and be a real jerk. You can know a whole lot of truth but not show a whole lot of love. Jesus has perfect truth, perfect justice, and at the same time, perfect kindness. We're never going to be perfectly like Jesus, but that's who we pursue. The maturity principle is I interact with other people, interact with other people like Jesus would interact with them. Neither compromising holiness nor setting aside divine truth, nor being harsh and unkind. I want to notice here at the end, verses 41 and 42. Don't close your Bibles just yet. This is actually my longest point. Uh, Notice the priority principle. Interacting with other people, showing mercy. It's going to be generosity. Do you show generosity, forgiveness to those who wrong you? Is there maturity, Christ-likeness in your interactions? And then here's the priority principle. There are some things that need to happen first. There are some things that are more important than other people. Notice verse 41. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, and perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Okay, there's a couple of things that he's saying are more important than other people. This idea of a moat is the idea of a speck of a wood chip. Anybody ever get like a piece of sawdust in your eye? Like that doesn't feel good, right? Like sawdust, you're over there crying and your eye is hurting and it's turning all red. Like doesn't feel good. But can we agree sawdust in your eye is not deadly, right? It's not blinding. You can still see out of your other eye. Uh, it's, it's an irritation. It's mildly irritating, but it is not completely debilitating. Okay, so there's, someone's got something going on in their life. There's, there's a sin in their life. There's a failing. There's an area where they need to grow. That, that would be the moat. That would be the speck. And then he says, you don't perceive the beam. Okay, the, the word for beam, these would be, refer to the beams that would have been used like for the, the main rafters of the house. So don't just think two by four, but think like one of those big old beams that are like the, the structural load-bearing girders. Telephone pole. So this is meant to be a, a silly illustration. Like nobody walks around with a telephone pole in their face. That would be absurd. This is meant to be an absurd illustration to be like, it's nuts to go around trying to do eye surgery on other people when you yourself cannot see because there's a big glaring fault in your life. So we talk about the priority principle. I want to work this out in a few ways. One of, them is that one of the aspects of the priority principle is this, prioritize beams over specs. In other words, not every issue is as important as other issues, right? Not every issue is as important as other issues. Al Mohler's got a great phrase he calls theological triage, right? The triage in the hospital, like, okay, hangnail is not the same as, like, somebody's been shot, right? Same thing happens theologically when we're, we're, we're confronting error, we're dealing with issues in the church, when we're helping other people. Someone who's like, you know, I'm not really sure that Jesus is God. That's a big deal because if we don't, if we don't have a Savior who is, who is God, we don't have a Savior, Someone who's like, man, the Bible, man, is full of errors. I don't think I can trust it. That's a first order major issue. That's a beam. That's a big deal. That's something that we've got to deal with pretty directly. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about church discipline. Someone living in open sexual sin in an unrepentant state, 
He's saying, church, you've got to deal with that. That's not a little issue that you're like, hey, we'll just kind of patiently hope they grow. That's something that needs to be dealt with head on, right? A direct violation of God's law. First order kind of issue, beams. Then there's sort of second order issues where you're like, someone could get these things wrong but still be a good Christian, right? A brother or sister in Christ is like, man, I'm really confused about, I don't know, the doctrine of the speaking in tongues. What does this mean? Hey, we want to come alongside, help them grow. But that's not one of those things where it's like, man, this immediately needs to be dealt with because your eternal soul is at stake here. Someone's like, man, I'm trying to understand like the doctrine of election. But, well, I haven't got it figured out yet either, so if you do, let me know. Uh, second order kind of issue. Someone maybe, hey, they're missing church from time to time. Hey, Christians should attend church. By the way, if you're a member of our church, you have committed to coming every time the doors are open. That's something you agree to. But say there's a Christian who's like, eh, they're rolling in late, they're missing time. It's a place where they need to grow, where there's a place to kindly come alongside, but we're not dealing with a first-order issue where we're like, man, their soul is at stake. You understand, right? Difference between a, a beam and a speck. And then there's some issues that are completely matters of indifference. Another Christian listens to music that you don't like on the radio. A church across town uses a translation of the Bible that you do not prefer. Another family allows their kids to go and solicit candy on October 31st. Those are matters of indifference. Here's why I say they're matters of indifference. I've got no business judging another person's conscience on things that the Bible doesn't address. Bible, the Bible doesn't address it. I don't have any business being like, hey, let me try and get you right on this issue because people answer to God. Why, why do I say that? The Bible does not prescribe a music style. The Bible does not mandate a single translation. And the Bible does not prohibit kids from soliciting candy on October 31st. Now, there may be wisdom in choosing what you and your family do on those issues. But those are issues where they're not even specs. Those are places where it's just like people do things differently and you have a conscience and you answer to God for it. So that's when I'm talking about the priority principle, there's a difference between beams and specs. Big, important issues that really need to be dealt with and ones that are like, you know what, that may not be my place. We've got to have discernment to be able to tell the difference. But really the main point here with the priority principle is notice the contrast in verse 41. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye and perceivest not the log that is in thine own eye? Here's the priority principle. Really the main point of it is deal with you first, right? Deal with the sin in your own heart first before you go and try and nitpick in other people's lives. I said earlier, this judgmental attitude is pointing fingers at other people so I don't have to deal with the sin in my own heart. The opposite of this is not ignoring sin, but rather deal with the sin in your own heart and then you can go help someone else. You need to prioritize. So I say prioritize beams over specs. Let me put it this way. Prioritize self-examination. This is a call, verses 41 and 42, a call for us to radically and ruthlessly examine our own hearts, our own motives. And that is number one. I'm going to stand before God one day and answer for Sam Sinclair. Right? And in a sense, as pastor, I'm going to stand before God and answer for the church in a broad sense. But I'm not going to stand and answer to God for your conscience, right? I, I'm, I, so if I'm going to be like, well, I'm going to go help everyone else and ignore sin in my own heart, that's a dangerous thing. So why should I prioritize self-examination? Why well, should prioritize self-examination? Because the opposite self-righteousness blinds me. Notice what Jesus says in verse 42. How can you say to your brother? In other words, you don't even have the ability to see what's going on in his life because there's a big telephone pole in your life. Could you just imagine there's a telephone pole right here? Like, you can't see anything, right? You're completely blinded by that, and you're like, let me try and do eye surgery on my brother. 
Okay, I'll be honest. The whole idea of eye surgery kind of scares me. Even like LASIK surgery and cataract surgery. Thankfully, I've got good eyesight for now. My baseball coach didn't think so, but I got good eyesight for now. That whole idea of someone messing with your eyes is scary, right? Thankfully, they've got great technology to do stuff. But is there anyone out there who would be like, hey, I'm going to go sign up for an eye surgeon who's so awesome he does eye surgery blindfolded? Anybody would be like, yeah, blindfolded eye surgeon sounds like a real winner. Well, of course not. That would be ridiculous. And yet how many of us, how many of you attempt to be blindfolded eye surgeons going around dealing with little issues in other people's lives when the blindfold of self-righteousness is covering your spiritual eyesight? The question Jesus asks, how can you possibly attempt to remove sawdust when you can't even see because there's a glaring sin right here? That question in verse 32, or verse 42, how can you say to your brother, let me pull the moat out of thine eye, when now thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? There's also a sense in which you don't have any discernment to realize there's a sequoia-sized sin in your own life, and you want to go deal with the sapling-sized sin in someone else's. So why do we need to prioritize self-examination? Because self-righteousness blinds me and actually makes it dangerous for me to try and help someone else. You could do a whole lot of damage to somebody's eyes if you try to start digging around in their eye when you have a blindfold on. But conversely, self-examination. Okay, self-righteousness blinds me, but self-examination frees me. Notice what he says in verse 42. Look back at the text. How canst thou say, let me pull the moat out of the eye when you behold not hypocrite? Hey, you're a play actor. You're a fake. Cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then you are able to go and help your brother grow. You are going to help him deal with the sin in his life. But you deal with what's going on in your life first. You deal with the sin in your life, and then you're actually able to come along. Now, that word hypocrite. Hypocrite is someone who is a play actor, a fraud, a fake. That's what the word originally referred to. Someone who pretends to be other than he really is. The the, the, the fault-finding, self-appointed judge is a play actor, Jesus says. Why? Because they are trying to cover their own sins with the costume of a judge. It's like, man, I'm going to go trick-or-treating. I'm dressing up as a judge. I'm pretending to be something other than I'm not. They're covering their own sin with the costume of moral outrage. You see, the hypocrite will be morally indignant at the sins of others, but self-righteously ignorant of his own. Indignant, I'm so mad about your sin and the sin in society and what's going on in the news. Man, I'm fired up about that but totally ignorant of the sin in my own heart. That's hypocrisy. So how do I go about self-examining? How do I go about checking out my own heart? I'm glad you asked. This is a daily practice for the Christian. This is not just something that happens when we take communion as a church. By the way, we'll be doing communion in a few weeks at our fourth Sunday fellowship on May 23rd. We have a time of self-examination to check our hearts in a special way before we go to the table. But this should be a daily practice for you. How do, we, how do I know what is right and wrong? Well, from the word of God. So I read the scriptures, and James tells me it's like a mirror that, that shows me what's going on in my own life. I wouldn't want to try to, like, trim my beard without, it, without the mirror, right? That may look really interesting, and I've messed it up more than one time, right, even with the mirror. The mirror gives you the guidance to help you to see what's going on in your own life, in your own heart. You read God's word not just so you can learn theology, not just... So you can say you did it and and check the box off on the reading guide, but so that God can speak to you and reveal what is going on in your heart. And that's not the only reason you read also to see the glory of Christ and to worship him, but read the scripture not for other people, not so you can tell others, but for you, for the needs of your own soul. You read the word and you confess your sin to God. The Lord's Prayer, probably all of us are familiar with that 
prayer called the Lord's Prayer. One of the petitions is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Not just saying those words, but actually listing them out. Actually stepping back and saying, where have I fallen short of what God has laid out for me? Search me, O God. And not just behavior. Let me give you a little bit of a a rubric here. Yes, our behavior, the actions. Are there actions that I have taken? They don't know that question. But I need to go a little bit deeper. Are there attitudes in my heart? You know, maybe I haven't gone off and like said something mean to someone, but man, I thought that in my heart. That needs to be confessed. Even motives. Sin is so deeply rooted in our hearts, it goes all the way down to the best of God. God, I'm trying to do what's right, but I, I want to do what's wrong so much that even the want to do what is wrong is itself sin. Humbling effect on your soul. But self-examination sometimes means bringing in other people. Here's this, does, does sin come in and corrupt my life? But sin begins to blind me to sin itself. It gets there, it sort of moves into the house and sets up to where it's like the furniture in our lives to where we get so used to sin that we don't even notice anymore that it's like, hey, that's kind of ugly and it shouldn't be there. Hebrews 3 says, take heed lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This is is scary. This ought to scare you, beloved, that sin can begin to deceive you and warp your understanding of your own heart. It can make you, you begin to be blind to the fact that you're blind, so you think about your, your car. There's that blind spot, right? When you come to change lanes, you're supposed to kind of take a little peek over your shoulder, or maybe you've got the blind spot mirror to check that, that area that you don't see readily in your life and don't even realize, like, man, this is a real problem. So how do I see those? What is the blind spot mirror God has given me? Hebrews 3 goes on to say this. Exhort one another daily while it is still called today. Did you hear that? One another That means you're bringing other people into your battle against sin. It's not just me with my Bible praying, though that's a huge part of it. It's me also saying to brothers and sisters in Christ, hey, are there any areas in my life that you're noticing that are a problem? You need to invite people into your life to do that. Have you ever done that? Have you ever sat down with another Christian who you trust, who you don't view as a blind guide, but someone who who loves Jesus and said, I want you to just honestly evaluate my life and I'm giving you total permission to call out anything that you see. Any areas where you're seeing I need to grow or things that I'm, I'm doing that are problematic, things that I'm doing that are causing hurt and harm to the name of Jesus or to other people. And be ready for people to give you honest answers on that. Don't, don't expect them to be like, oh no, you're the best Christian I've ever met. No, we're, we're sinners. We're, we're looking for feedback here. By the way, when you join a church, I don't know if you know this, you are inviting that kind of accountability and you're agreeing to do that for other people. That is why we have this thing called church membership, because we're kind of going on record saying, I need accountability, and I'm inviting accountability. You prioritize self-examination. So this priority principle, you're prioritizing beams over specks. You're prioritizing the sin of your own heart over the sin in your brother's heart. But don't lose sight of this. It also means you prioritize your brother. Right? I said judgmentalism is selfish. Judgmentalism is pointing fingers at other people so people stop noticing the sin in my heart. Right? I'm going to make them look bad so I can feel better about myself. This kind of prioritizing says the needs of my brother really matter. So he says, verse 42, look back. Cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then you will see clearly to do what? To pull the moat that is in thy brother's eye. So it comes back around not to just being like, oh, I'm going to ignore his sin. But now I'm actually in a place where I can help him. I'm going to prioritize helping him spiritually. One of our goals here at Cloverleaf Baptist Church is that we have a culture of discipling, which means this. We all see it as our role, as our calling to help people find and to follow Jesus. Where I say, I'm going to come alongside other people and and not in a a 
hypocritical, prideful, let me come and help you because you're, you're obviously such a miserable Christian, but to lock arms together as we follow Jesus. And when you see someone beginning to lag behind, come back and say, hey, I'm going to run this lap with you. Like, I'm going I'm to go through this with you. Hey, man, is there an area of sin? There's some trenches of sin that need to be stormed. I'm going to storm those trenches with you. I've got your back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to text you and ask you how your devotions are going. We're going to reach out to each other and be like, let, let's have meaningful conversation with each other about how we're doing spiritually. So how do I go about helping my brother? Well, obviously with an examined heart. I go into that conversation having sought my own heart. Galatians 6, I think, is an important commentary on this text. Let me read these verses. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual... Okay, mature, maturity principle. Restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. So notice the goal is not point out sin just to point out sin to make them feel bad, but to restore them in their walk with Jesus. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You hear that? Not just, I would never struggle with the things you would struggle with. I can't believe you struggle with these things, you horrible person. But hey, my own heart is susceptible to temptation. I'm coming from an attitude of humility to help you follow Jesus. Come with an examined heart. James Edwards says this, only self-reform enables Christians to see the other not only differently, but correctly. I'm not going to really see people correctly until I've taken a good, long, hard look at my own heart. We do this with a humble heart. That's the sense here of Galatians 6 verse 1. Coming with a spirit of meekness. Not, I'm better than you. I'm the judge. I've appointed myself to the Supreme Court to go and judge you and you and you and you. But coming alongside as a brother. Coming alongside as a sister. You see, my goal, if Jesus is the measure of what is righteousness, when I come alongside to confront sin in a, in a brother or sister's life, my goal is not simply to point out sin, but to point to Jesus. I'll say that again. My goal is not simply to point out sin, but to point to Jesus. He's our only hope. Whether you're a Christian this morning or you're not a Christian, I've been primarily speaking to Christians, but let me say a word to you if you're like, man, I, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't have that forgiving heart that you were talking about. Uh, I tend to sort of be in moral judgment on other people. Jesus is the only hope that we have. Right? Nobody here is a Christian today because they're better than other people. In fact, the entrance requirement to becoming a follower of Jesus is recognizing that you don't have it together, recognizing that you are a sinner and a rebel against God. Realizing that you do have a judgmental heart, that you're not merciful, that you're not loving, that you're not like Jesus. And because of that, you deserve God's condemnation. That's what a Christian is. Someone who recognizes all of those things and then says, Jesus is my only hope. Yet not I, but through Christ in me, as we just sang a minute ago. Recognizing that he died on the cross for my sins so that I could be forgiven. Christian is one who believes that with all of their heart and relies on that with all of their heart to such a degree that they turn from their sin to rest in Jesus. So there, if you're here this morning and you take a look at your life, take a look at your heart and you realize, if this is what a Christian is, I'm not a Christian. Now, a Christian is not someone who prayed a prayer. A Christian is not someone who's been baptized. A Christian is not someone who's got their name on a membership role. A Christian is someone who has had their hearts so radically transformed by Jesus, they begin to look like this. That's what a Christian is. You say, I'm not a Christian this morning. I would call you today. I would beg you. I would urge you. Turn to Christ. Trust in him. He died on the cross for you. He loves you. And he rose again. For those of you who are Christians, are you sometimes trying to storm the Supreme Court of Heaven to take the place of God? 
The call here is to have a life of generosity. The call here is to have a life that is marked by Christ-likeness. The call here is to take a long, hard look at our own hearts. So will you do that? God calls us to be merciful. As verse 36 says, Be ye therefore merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So may we meditate and emulate the mercy of our Father. Lord, 